The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Decoding the Latest Evidence and Practical Recommendations on Biomarker Testing for New Therapeutic Options Targeting HER2, HER3, and TROP2 in Solid Tumors, featuring Dr. Kurt A. Schalper from the Yale School of Medicine Yale Cancer Center in New Haven, Dr. Michael F. Press from the USC Norris Comprehensive Cancer Center in Los Angeles, Dr. Paolo Tarantino from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, and Dr. Zev A. Weinberg from the Johnson Comprehensive Cancer Center UCLA GI Oncology Program at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA in Los Angeles. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash EZK 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning and welcome everybody to today's program. Uh, my name is Kurt Chalper and I'll be chairing this session about decoding the latest evidence and practical recommendations on biomarker testing for new therapeutic options targeting HER2, HER3, and TROP2 in solid tumors. Today we have um, an amazing panel of speakers who will be uh, discussing different topics. Um, we have Dr. Michael Press. Um, he's a professor of pathology at the University of Southern California. We have Dr. Paolo Tarantino. He's a medical oncologist from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Harvard Medical School. And we have Dr. Seb Weinberg, who is a professor of oncology here at UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine. And with that, um, I'll kick off uh, talking about understanding the foundational concepts in this uh, fast-progressing area of precision medicine, focusing on these um, novel targeted uh, therapies. And to start, um, I'll open fire talking a little bit about the ERBB family of tyrosine kinase receptor, which are these uh, four members, including EGFR, HER2, HER3, and HER4, uh, that have been uh, widely studied in cancer and have shown to be relevant. Uh, they have some things in common. They share structural features as uh, surface tyrosine kinase receptors, and they're generally aberrantly activated and overexpressed in a number of different tumor types. Um, as you will see, they, they have served and they will serve as uh, drug targets in the future, and we are revisiting them because there are a lot of changes in the field. One important thing about these receptors is that they generally are expressed um, in, in the tumor cells or upregulated in different ways, and they can uh, dimerize to actually do autophosphorylation of intracellular domains, who ultimately activate intracellular signaling like PI3 kinase pathway and MAP kinase pathway related with cell proliferation, motility, and invasiveness. So this is essentially the concept by which these um, mechanisms uh, enhance tumorigenesis. And then there are structural sh um, similarities between them that are shown here. They all have this uh, similar extracellular domain with multiple um, fragments. And it's important to note them because some of the therapies that we will share in the presentation actually target different extracellular domains, and they may be non-redundant, which actually supports their combinations. And then there's a transmembrane domain and then the intracellular domain, which is the target of some uh, small molecules that can inhibit the tyrosine kinase phosphorylation. So it's important to have a structural map because it's uh, related with the antibody um, or drug targeting. Um, and then the other important biological uh, concept is that, as I mentioned, these uh, um, uh, receptors have been studied for a long time, but there's still a number of questions about them. Um, what we know so far is that there are a number of uh, ligands, uh, too many probably to actually study them carefully, uh, and that there is only one of the receptors for which no ligand has been described, which is HER2. 
And this is really impressive, understanding that HER2 has been um, a major uh, target in, in, of uh, cancer treatment. Um, so, so all of the other receptors have uh, ligands, and they, as you can see, are very, very broadly distributed. So um, this targeting um, of uh, ERBB receptors have been happening for a long time, since the 90s, essentially, when trastuzumab was developed and used. But over the years, there have been numerous attempts to um, do additional targeting, sometimes redundant, sometimes non-redundant, to be able to achieve uh, deeper and better uh, and more directed uh, anti-tumor effects. And this is just a summary of some of those uh, strategies, which, uh, the first ones of which were trastuzumab, which is this antibody that targets um, one domain, four of uh, the extracellular domain, um, and it's expected to induce um, internalization of the receptor um, and ultimately uh, engagement of um, antibody-derived cell cytotoxicity. So it's a mixed mechanism that I don't think we fully understand, but it's at least shown to work this way. And then there have been additional antibodies that target, um, in this case, segment two of the extracellular domain, which is the dimerization domain. So they can actually inhibit dimerization of HER2 with other ERBB family members, which is pertuzumab. And as you all know, uh, pertuzumab, trastuzumab have been a major contributor um, to a treatment of breast cancer. Um, so, so this is the sort of the traditional way, but there are also small molecule inhibitors that, as I mentioned, can cross the membrane easily and then can target intracellular signaling, and these are lapatinib, neratinib, and tucatinib, and we'll see a little bit more about them. And then there are bispecific antibodies that can actually target different extracellular domains uh, or segments of the extracellular domain to actually achieve a deeper response. And arguably the newest ones are these um, antibody drug conjugates that use um, the trastuzumab binding domain to anchor um, a protein that contains a payload of uh, essentially chemotherapy um, and that can be now used and has shown impressive clinical results. So this is sort of the general landscape of treatments. I'll focus on this antibody drug conjugates because it's essentially the topic of today's presentation in, in, in large part. Uh, and these uh, antibody drug conjugates are slightly different from what we have seen in the past. They still use um, the same domain of recognition. Uh, and, and as you can see, the antibody recognition is preserved. But on the FC domain, they're attached with a payload, which is, can be, uh, in this case, um, a top, top, topoisomerase 1 inhibition. Uh, and these are uh, conjugated to the antibody using an enzymatically cleavable linker. So this um, uh, actually allows this uh, drug to enter the cells that express the receptor. And then this uh, molecule goes to the lysosome where the cleaver uh, or the, the enzymatic uh, activity cleaves the, the topoisomerase inhibitor ultimately intoxicating cells. What is interesting is that this new antibody drug conjugate seem to also have the capacity to produce bystander effect and non-HER2 positive cells, which is a major uh, element. And as you can see in this slide, um, after this experience, there have been a number of um, antibody drug conjugates being developed. Um, we mentioned some of the HER2s. This is the first generation TDM1, and then there are these uh, deruxtecan conjugates. And, and then there is a number of additional targets, uh, and they're all expected to work in a relatively similar fashion, meaning um, internalization of the receptor, release of the payload, and ultimately cytotoxic killing. This is a, a little bit of evidence of how these uh, antibodies work, and this is an example with uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan um, done in, in vivo, in this case using nude mice, athemic nude mice, where both HER2-positive and negative cell lines were inoculated to generate tumors. And as you can see here, treatment with TDM1, so a first-generation trastuzumab uh, 
essentially with a microtubule inhibitor, was able to kill the HER2-positive cells, but the HER2-negative cells remain, and you can see here a chunk of tumor. Um, as opposed to that, the new trastuzumab-terustican was able to clear both HER2-positive cells and HER2-negative cells, and you can see here resolution. This opens a number of questions, actually, the, about the mechanism of action and how necessary it is to have a certain amount of HER2 in the surface. But this is good evidence that these treatments are different and they require um, less, potentially less HER2. Then we have HER3, which is, uh, as I mentioned, another interesting family member, which is known to have a relatively weak intracellular kinase activity by itself. Uh, and it, uh, but the major activity so far has been related to its capacity to dimerize with uh, either EGFR or HER2, and that can actually trigger potent intracellular signaling. HER3 is actually um, amplified in a relatively small fraction of tumors that you can see in here, uh, and it's also um, mutated quite rarely in cancer. So we believe that the, mostly it's involved in, um, you know, uh, oncogenic process and even resistance to targeted therapies by upregulation of the protein, which is something that we will talk about next. As expected, there are a number of uh, treatments being developed now to target HER3, and this is just a short summary. There are antibodies blocking the new regulin binding site. There are bispecifics. Uh, there are antibodies blocking heterodimerization with other RBB family members. Uh, and there are also vaccines and immunotherapies related with this. So we're probably going to see a lot of this, and some of it will be discussed next. And finally, we'll talk a little bit about TROP2, which is um, a, 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 essentially a protein membrane originally described in trophoblastic cells of the placenta, which is a membrane receptor that has an extracellular domain that can be cleaved. And it has been shown to bind both um, uh, tight junction proteins, so it's involved in intercellular junctions, uh, and can also signal and interact through uh, calcium signaling and a number of oncogenic signaling uh, to ultimately be involved in tissue regeneration. Uh, what is interesting is that it's also been shown to be upregulated in a substantial fraction of epithelial tumor cells, um, and this has been now harnessed uh, to develop treatments. So next, we'll uh, summarize what are the current trials and indications for these new antibody drug conjugates, focusing on HER2, HER3, and TROP2, and we'll first talk about breast cancer, then we'll move to GI tumors, then we'll talk briefly about lung, and then we'll talk about scoring. Um, and finally, we'll talk about directions and how, ultimately, all of these changes can impact the practice of pathology and oncology. So with that, um, we'll move to the next section. Um, and here, I'd like to introduce Dr. Paolo Tarantino, who will focus on breast cancer. Thank you so much, Kurt. And I'd really like to start with this slide, which gives you an overview of what has been achieved in the, in the setting of HER2 targeting in breast cancer. And HER2 was characterized in the 80s and just 20 years later, in 1998, you had the first drug that was approved by the FDA, trastuzumab, for metastatic breast cancer. And now, about 25 years later, we have eight drugs FDA approved for NTR2 drugs, both in the early and advanced setting for breast cancer, encompassing different pharmacological entities. And here you can see what can be achieved today with the first line that we have for HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. This is the Cleopatra trial of chemotherapy plus trastuzumab and pertuzumab, which are two HER2-blocking monoclonal antibodies. And you can see that after eight years, more than a third of the patients are still alive, and some of these patients have never progressed. And we are starting to think that some of these patients are cured by their metastatic disease. And moving on, several novel drugs have appeared and are significantly improving the outcomes of our patients. This is tucatinib, is a novel 
uh, NTR2 TKI. And uh, the novelty of this compound is that it's highly selective for HER2, which allows to avoid some, some of the side effects of other TKIs like skin toxicity or GI toxicities. And you can see some of the data of the phase one trial of this compound that was tested in combination with capecitabine and trastuzumab. But the real trial that led to the approval of this drug is the HER2 CLIMB phase two trial. It was a large phase two trial of more than 600 patients. And this study, the addition of tucatinib to capecitabine and trastuzumab led to a marked improvement in PFS and overall survival in patients with pretreated metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer. But most importantly, there was very high activity for patients with brain metastasis. And the important thing is that in this trial, also patients with active and progressive brain metastasis were allowed to be enrolled, which is something that you don't have in every trial. So the addition of tucatinib was beneficial both in patients with stable and with unstable active brain metastasis. And moving on, another novel TKI is neratinib. And differently from tucatinib, there is a panher TKI, which means that it can have also the toxicity I've mentioned. And this was tested in the NALA phase three trial, which compared neratinib plus capecitabine to lapatinib plus capecitabine, which was the prior standard. And you can see that neratinib achieved uh, an improved PFS, although overall survival um, showed just a numerical improvement, but not a statistical improvement in this study. And, and then we move to the ADCs. We have seen that this is a new way of um, somehow directing payloads, chemotherapy payloads toward tumor cells. And trastuzumab, the, the first uh, NTR2 ADC to be approved in 2013 was TDM1. And novel ADCs have some engineering improvements compared to TDM1, which allow to unimproved activity. And in particular, TDXD, which is a short for trastuzumab deruxican, has uh, a different payload, which is a top isomerase inhibitor and compared to a tubular inhibitor in TDM1, a higher drug to antibody ratio of about eight molecules of payload for each antibody compared to 3.5 for TDM1. And the, the payload is membrane permeable, which allows for the bystander effect that we have seen previously. And it was first tested in Destiny Breast 01 trial, which was a phase two trial with different cohorts, different doses for patients with high metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer patients, highly pretreated with a median of six prior lines. In this setting, you would expect around 10 to 15% objective response rate and short PFS. But in this study, TDXD achieved an impressive objective response rate of 61%, you can see that nearly all the patients experience a shrinkage of disease. And even more importantly, this was highly durable. You had a duration of response of 20 months and a PFS of 19 months. And this was really unprecedented in the field and led to the design of several randomized phase three trials. And here you can see that the Destiny Breast 03 just was recently presented by Javier Cortez. And this was a randomized trial that compared head-to-head -head TDXD to the prior second-line standard, which was TDM1. These were all patients, metastatic or 2 positive breast cancer patients, pretreated with trastuzumab and chemotherapy. Most of them had also received pertuzumab. And there were stratification based of hormoreceptor status, prior treatment with pertuzumab, and history of visual disease. And the primary endpoint was PFS. And even just from the objective response rate, you can see that the TDXD achieved even a higher response rate. You can see it was 
80% of the patient achieved an objective response, 16% a complete response, which is something we have never seen in the field for patients that have already progressed to trastuzumab. And when we move to PFS, we see that trastuzumab can widely outperform TDM1 with um, medium PFS, which was not reached at the time of presentation, but it was around 25 months. And for TDM1, it's 6.8 months. And you can see the other ratio is 0.28. So this trial really changed the current practice. And trastuzumab deruxacan is considered the, the, the preferred second-line regimen for patients that progress to trastuzumab and chemotherapy. And moving on, margituximab is instead a compound which is pretty similar to trastuzumab, but with you can see an engineering in the FC domain, which allows for a higher affinity for deactivating CD16A receptor and lower affinity for the inhibitory receptor CD32B. And this should somehow enhance the ADCC and so the immune activity against tumor cells. And this was tested in a phase three SOFIA trial, which showed that margituximab compared to trastuzumab when combined with chemotherapy allowed for a slight improvement in PFS of 0.9 months. This was statistically significant. It was a positive trial, which led to the FDA approval of the drug. Well, but which, what is more interesting, in my opinion, is that for a um, specific subgroup, pre-specified subgroup enrolled in this trial, which were patients with particular alleles of the CD16A um, gene, which was 86% of the whole population with the FF or FV allele, there was an, a marked more improvement in PFS and OS of 1.8 months in PFS, but 4.3 months in OS. And several trials are now being restricted to this genome-selected population with margituximab. And here you can see the NCCN recommendations for the moment, as I've previously described the first line, the, the standard line after the Cleopatra trial has been pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and either docetaxel or also paclitaxel or other taxanes are accepted as first line treatment. And these are very effective and well-tolerated regimen. For patients progressing to this first line regimen, the second line is trastuzumab, deruxican with some other options. And then you have several third line and beyond possibilities like tucatinib triplet or also TDM1 and others. But actually, we're seeing that the HER2, the HER2 space is widening because we have this HER2 low category. This is showing some activity. We have some novel ADCs showing activity not only in the 15 to 20% of the patients with HER2 positive breast cancer, but in a wider population of patients with lower mm, expressions of HER2. And we have seen high activity of trastuzumab deruxica in this population but also trastuzumab duocarmazine, which is another anti-HER2 antibody drug conjugate, and dizitamab vedoting, also known as RC48 ADCs. All these ADCs have shown 30 to 40% response rate, and we are seeing in the future that some of these might come to the clinic because we have a positive phase three trial of trastuzumab deruxican in HER2 low breast cancer. The problem is that it's not so easy for, for the moment to distinguish because between IHC0 and IHC1, and Dr. Press is going to discuss this further. So these are going to be challenges that we're going to be facing in the future for the HER2 loss space. And even we have seen activity with TDXD, with some ADCs in patients with no detectable HER2, IHC0. And in this trial called DAISY trial, we had 30% response rate. And 
Moving on to other uh, alterations of HER2, you, you had some compounds that show an activity in HER2 mutant breast cancer, which is a subset of around 2 to 5% of breast cancer, depending on the setting. And you can see that neratinib could, could cause some shrinkage and also some prolonged responses. And now these have been combined with other drugs like fulvestrant and trastuzumab, achieving even higher response rates. And But moving on instead to other targets compared to HER2, uh, against HER3, some targets, some, some novel compounds were developed, but tritumab deruxican is an anti-HER3 ADC, it's pretty similar to trastuzumab deruxican, but once again directed against HER3, and this compound shows an objective response rate of 43% with a median PFS of 8.3 months in patients with any subtype of breast cancer. And we're gonna need for updated data, but this is highly encouraging. And finally, we have a wide variety of antitrop 2 agents, antitrop 2 ADCs are gonna be, are being developed. Sacituzumab govitiga is the first one to be tested and is now considered a standard of care in the field thanks to the Essen trial, which was a phase three trial conducted in metastatic triple negative breast cancer, a highly aggressive disease. These were patients pretreated with two prior treatments and were randomized to Sacituzumab govitiga or chemotherapy. And it really showed that median PFS, which was the primary endpoint, was improved, but median OS was doubled, was 12 months compared to six months in the standard chemotherapy arm. And something intriguing from this trial is that you could see that the activity of um, sacituzumab govitican were, was slightly dependent on the TROP2 expression, but in every TROP2 expression subgroup, sacituzumab govitican outperformed chemotherapy. And, and then you have dapotamab deruxicum, which is a novel anti-TROP2 ADC. This is also similar to trastuzumab deruxicum and patritumab deruxicum. So the, the, um, the payload is a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor. The drug-to-antibody ratio is 4, and it can cause bystander effect. And here you can see this data were recently presented at San Antonio by Ian Crop, and the objective response rate was 34%, with some patients responding even if they were progressing to sacituzumab govitican or DXD-based ADCs. And okay. we can move now to the gastroesophageal uh, side of this novel treatments, and many of them, as you will see, and they were going to be presented by the Weinberg, uh, are going to show activity also in GI malignancies. Please, Stefan. Thank you, and thank you. Nice to be here, and uh, happy to present some of the GI perspective, which is obviously quite a bit different than breast cancer. Um, you know, I think one of the key recognition points is that in gastric cancer, after breast cancer, it's been known for a while, for about 20 years or so, that gastric cancer probably has the greatest, second greatest level of HER2 expression, both with respect to immunohistochemical expression of the protein and with respect to amplification. There have been much fewer studies done in gastric cancer. Probably the prototype is on the bottom here with, with respect to um, the TOGA trial that demonstrated about 15 to 20% of patients with gastric cancer will have some element of HER2 overexpression or amplification. Now, now the thing to keep in mind is that distinct from breast cancer, um, one of the key elements in gastric cancer is that along with HER2, there's a lot of co-amplification and overexpression of other receptor types and kinases. So cancers, I would argue, that are truly HER2 positive in gastric cancer are not quite as dependent as they are in breast cancer on the HER2 pathway. 
Now, there have been many, many studies done over the years, and as I mentioned, the prototypes have been um, published over many years. Now, probably about 15 to 20 percent, and there's a couple of things to keep in mind. One of them is that the, tumor, the expression of HER2 is a little greater in the proximal stomach or the gastroesophageal junction than it is in the distal body of the stomach, and it's also a little more common in in the intestinal, intestinal subvorin classification of gastric cancer. So as we all know, divided between diffuse and intestinal. HER2 is a little more common, um, quite a bit more common historically in the intestinal subtype of gastric cancer. Some things to keep in mind. Now, over the years, there have been a number of questions about the concordance rate, and, and Dr. Press will talk about this in more detail, between immunohistochemistry and FISH. As mentioned, we don't have a, a, um, as much data here as we do in breast cancer, but by and large, there's a nearly 90% concordance rate between FISH and IHC in most of these studies. There have been a little more variability in gastric cancer, I would argue, um, but we'll let Dr. Press get into that in more detail. Now, what is the role of treatment of trastuzumab? So this is a, a study published in 2016, which was not that long ago, about five years ago, that established the role of trastuzumab with chemotherapy in patients with newly diagnosed metastatic HER2-positive gastric cancer. And this trial randomized patients, a massive screening effort, obviously, randomizing patients to either 3-plus IHC or 2-plus FISH-positive to either chemotherapy alone or chemotherapy plus trastuzumab that had an overall survival improvement in the group of patients with chemotherapy plus trastuzumab and established it as standard of care. Um, in an exploratory analysis, the better bang for your buck seemed to be here among the group of patients who were IHC3 plus or 2 plus FISH positive, in which the benefit of the patients who got trastuzumab was more enhanced. Now, moving on from that, that was about five, six, or seven years ago when we knew the data, we thought at that time that gastric cancer would follow the paradigm of breast cancer in which all these other drugs would prove to be useful. And unfortunately, um, it was not the case. We went through about a solid eight years of negative uh, phase two and phase three trials in gastric cancer for HER2 selected agents. Here I listed the biggest ones, but there were some beyond this that even showed that basic things like trastuzumab, so-called trastuzumab beyond progression, with a taxane and second wine still didn't show um, a, a positive impact. And, and so this was a bit deflating for gastric cancer, HER2 positive disease until the last few years. Now we've started to see some changes and some um, reinvigorating of HER2 positive and gastric cancer. The first one is interestingly not with the HER2 directed agents, but with the combination of chemotherapy, trastuzumab, and pembrolizumab, the PDL1 inhibitor. Um, and you can see here that this was a very large study of HER2-positive gastric cancer that randomized patients to either chemotherapy plus trastuzumab or chemotherapy, trastuzumab, and pembrolizumab. And the primary endpoint of the study is overall survival and progression-free survival. But the secondary endpoint of the study um, was response rate. And here you could see on the left that the group of patients who got pembrolizumab chemotherapy and trastuzumab had a much higher response rate than the group of patients with chemotherapy and trastuzumab as well. And this is independent of pdl one expression. It turns out that HER2-positive gastric cancer does not have a high degree, or, or almost all of the patients have some element of pdl one expression. So looking at pdl one by immunistic chemistry is not really valuable in HER2-positive gastric cancer. But here you could see that it met its uh, secondary endpoint of a huge increase in response rate, and that led to the 
Um, FDA appro- accelerated approval of that drug in second line, in, in front line, excuse me, I should say front line HER2 positive disease, which was a bit uh, unusual in the sense that we haven't even seen survival data, but the response rate was so high. Now, we, we do recognize that, as I mentioned, HER2 resistance is a, a common problem. Gastric cancer grows faster than breast cancer. It really is a, a much more aggressive disease biologically. The patterns of metastasis are more aggressive. The, as I mentioned, the combination and co-occurring alterations with HER2 and gastric cancer are much more um, profound and, and, and lots of other co-occurring alterations occur. So as this became recognized, strategies began to be developed to try to look at HER2 slightly differently. And there have been many, many studies published that suggest that indeed combination strategies with HER2 uh, are probably a better way to go by and large for something like gastric cancer where complete dependence on the HER2 cascade is a little, uh, is, is, is less relevant. Now the Destiny Gastric 01 study, which looked at TDXD, the trastuzumab deroxtec and antibody drug conjugate to start about, was done in Asia and it was in beyond second line therapy, which took patients who had progressed on trastuzumab based chemo and randomized them to either TDXD or investigator's choice chemotherapy. And it looked primarily at um, the HER2 ex- overexpression as defined as mentioned, three plus or two plus fish positive. Um, there were also selected cohorts of, as you heard earlier, so-called low expression. Interestingly, in gastric cancer, that did not have much activity at all. But in, in the primary endpoint of the study, which was response rate, the response rate was improved and the secondary endpoint overall survival was improved. This is an Asian-only study and, in fact, was compelling enough for the FDA to lead to the approval of trastuzumab deroxtecan in um, second-line HER2-positive disease. So we now have an approval, first new approval for HER2-positive disease in many years, in second-line for this antibody drug conjugate. Interestingly, uh, many people have thought over the years that in gastric cancer in Southeast Asia behaves very differently than it does in the United States, so that did compel the study to do a single-arm study in the Western world of the same antibody drug conjugates, which had a response rate of 38%, which was less than the 50% demonstrated in the Southeast Asian group, but a single-arm cohort that was necessary and required by the FDA um, to, to allow the drug to be utilized in this country. So by and large, there is some, some efficacy here of TDXD in second-line HER2-positive disease, um, and now that is utilized for gastric cancer as well. Now, colorectal cancer, which is, I, I would say, um, in many respects, emerging as a possible role for HER2 inhibitors, um, has been, in many years been evaluated for the presence of HER2 amplification or overexpression. There seems to be the suggestion, first of all, that it's very low, probably around 4 or 5% which in colon cancer would, would represent a large number, but many, many studies have so much variability that we're unable to pin down the exact frequency of the alteration in colorectal cancer. However, what seems to be clear is that it is more likely, more common in left-sided colon cancer and much, much more common in KRAS wild-type colon cancer, such that the true presence of HER2-positive colorectal cancer and KRAS mutant colon cancer is less than 1%. So certainly, and in, in, if you're thinking about this logically of who, who should we be testing for colon cancer at all, we would selectively look at RAS wild-type patients, particularly left-sided um, RAS wild-type patients. There have been some suggestion 
that these patients may, that this may confer a worse prognosis. But as mentioned, um, you know, a lot of this is retrospective and, and very hard to know for certain. I will say that it seems to be, by and large, a resistance mechanism for EGFR inhibitors. So patients with RAS wild type colon cancer that are treated with an EGFR inhibitor, such as cetuximab and panitumumab, have demonstrated in a number of patients a resistance mechanism driven by HER2, which, may, which lends itself, obviously, to the combination, possibly in clinical study. That being said, there's, very, there's been a number of studies now to look at what is the role of HER2-blocking drugs in metastatic colorectal cancer. Here's the TDXD experience with the Destiny CRC01 study that was recently published that enrolled 53 patients with IHC3+, plus or 2-plus IHC positive. Again, this low group that, that, that was tested in this study also didn't show any activity at all in the GI cancers, I will point out. So here you could see that the response rate was, was compelling enough and there was a, it was a single arm study, but the response rate was compelling enough in patients who had even some prior anti-HER2 therapy to allow the NCCN to list this as an option for patients. Randomized trials are going on right now of this molecule in metastatic colorectal cancer. Again, selectively HER2 positive, left-sided KRAS wild type colon cancer. And as I mentioned, there are a number of other HER2 targeting drugs, which are now uh, finding their way into some form of clinical development. Many of these studies will be non-randomized studies. Many of these studies will be single-arm studies, which include tucatinib, pertuzumab, and even lapatinib, which has shown some activity. Uh, but the problem is that there are such small cohorts, so to do randomized trials will be almost impossible in, in, in such a small frequent um, alteration. Finally, as, you, as we alluded to a minute ago, HER3 does seem to have a role in gastric cancer as well, particularly gastric cancer, perhaps more than colorectal cancer. There have been some suggestion that, in fact, in gastric cancer and colorectal cancer, the expression of HER3 leads to a poorer prognosis. And there have been a number of, of ADCs, particularly ADCs, as you just heard about, um, that are finding their way in clinical development for this rare group of patients. I'll shift back to... Um, now a discussion about lung cancer. <clears throat> Thank you. And one very intriguing aspect of this new ADC is that they're showing really activity in several different malignancies and even in thoracic malignancies. And uh, the first one where these ADCs were tested was no small cell lung cancer. This is a destiny lung one trial of trastuzumab deruxican in HER2 mutants or HER2 expressing, overexpressing uh, nosmal cell lung cancer. Mutations are usually found in around 2% of nosmal cell lung cancers, whereas overexpression is about 10 to 15% of nosmal cell lung cancers. These were all pretreated patients treated with different doses of DXD, TDXD. And this is the activity that was observed in the HER2 mutant cohort. You can see once again that the shrinkage is seen in most of the, almost all of the patients. The response rate was 55%. Most of the responses were durable, about nine months of median PFS. And these are highly aggressive uh, disease in need of novel treatments. Uh, you can see that compared to HER2 mutations, HER2 overexpression doesn't seem to allow for such a, a strong activity. You had here a 20 to 25% objective response rate in patients with nosmocellan cancer overexpressing at a 2 plus or 3 plus IHC assay. And the PFS was also shorter, about six months. 
And um, the phase three trial that was designed to confirm the activity of TDXZ in osmo cell lung cancer was the Destiny Lung 04, and these are first line treatment comparing TDXD to the current first line in, osmocell, in metastatic osmocell lung cancer, which is chemoimmunotherapy. And this is kind of the paradigm that we are observing in most of the um, oncogene-driven osmocell lung cancers to start with a targeted treatment like you see with osimertinib for EGFR mutant or many anti-ALK for ALK mutant and so on. Instead, in, in the ERT3 field, the patritumab deruxecan was tested, and this was restricted to patients with EGFR mutant advanced nosmocellan cancer, once again with different doses of the drug, and all of the patients enrolled in this phase one study were pretreated with prior TKIs in TER3, ER2, sorry, and anti-EGFR, and most of them had received prior osimertinib, chemotherapy, and se several of them also prior immunotherapy, so they were heavily pretreated, and still patritumab deruxecan could achieve an objective response rate of 39% with a median duration of 6.9 months and a median PFS of 8.2 months, which is very exciting in this population. And the Hertena lung one trial is uh, aimed to expand the, the activity to the, the observation of this compound with two different dose strategies. One is a fixed dose, 5.6 milligram per kilogram, and one is an up titration dose from 3.2 to 6.4 to see the different tolerability and activity of these two formulations. And moving to TROP2 targeted ADCs, these have our standard of care now in triple negative breast cancer, but they have shown activity in several epithelial malignancies. There is a nice paper published on Annals of Oncology showing that it has sacitusumab govitica and its activity in many different histologies. And looking at no small cell lung cancer, we had a 19% objective response rate with a median PFS of 5.2 months and a median OS of about 10 months. And there is an ongoing trial, the Tropics O3 phase two trial, which is testing sacituzumab govitecan for different epithelial malignancies, nosmocell cell lung cancer, head and neck squamous cell carcinoma, and endometrial cancer. And it's gonna tell us more about the activity of this compound in nosmocell cell lung cancer. And there are also two further trials, a phase three trial comparing sacituzumab govitecan to docetaxel, which is the current standard second line for patients without um, driver mutation, and the EVOC2 trial instead is assessing the activity of sacituzumab govitecan combined with immunotherapy with or without chemotherapy. And we're also going to know more about sacituzumab govitecan in this field, but as we have observed in, in breast cancer, we have another very interesting TROP2 targeting ADC called datoporamab deruxecan, and this similar to trastuzumab deruxecan, and this was tested in the tropion pan tumor one study, which is also the one that had a triple negative cohort, but also had several nosmo cell and cancer cohort with different doses that were used, four, six, or eight milligrams per kilogram, and you can see that the most compelling activity in osmocellan cancer was observed with the six milligram per kilogram dose, which achieved an objective response rate of 28%, and with a median duration of 10.5 months, which is highly encouraging in this population. And also the toxicity profile was better for six milligram per kilogram because we didn't have time to touch on this, but one of the issues of some of these 
ADCs is the risk of ILD interstitial lung disease, uh, which is seen with these compounds in about 10 to 15% of the patients. There were some fatal cases, but now it's becoming um, some with new guidelines, new way of treating this side effect. It's becoming more manageable. And so just as a, as a summary, Dato DXT is uh, showed encouraging activity, especially with a six milligram per kilogram dose and the tropion lung or one study is expanding the activity of this compound in no small cell lung cancer. And this is the design of the trial. Once again, it's compared to docetaxel, which is considered the standard second line for patients with nosmocellan cancer without activating mutations after chemoimmunotherapy. And it's going to prove if DATO-DXT is more active than chemotherapy in this setting. Okay, so now we're going to move um, to the next segment, which is focusing on um, now how we handle all of this at the biomarker level. Um, and this is obviously an important question. We have seen these activities in multiple tumor types. So uh, for this, we'll have uh, Dr. Michael Press, and he'll focus on breast cancer and gastric cancer. So the focus is going to be on HER2 testing, especially in breast cancer, but also including upper GI cancers. And I'm going to review some of the historical issues and the background related to this type of alteration and the testing that has been conducted especially in immunohistochemistry and fluorescence in situ hybridization. I'll briefly review the guidelines for both breast and uh, upper GI cancers. And uh, the purpose for going over this historical information and background information is to try to provide a perspective about some of the issues we're facing current in current testing for this alteration, but also to anticipate some of the challenges that we may look forward to within the HER2 low space for some of the drugs that are upcoming and appear to be very promising. So this, I'm going to begin with this slide, which summarizes data from a collaborative study conducted with Dennis Lehman's group in the past. And this slide summarizes some important issues that are worth keeping in mind. All of the samples here were frozen tissue samples that were analyzed at multiple levels. One of the things that one can take away from looking at this is that the HER2 copy number at the DNA level is directly correlated in 90% of the cases with the messenger RNA level, the protein level by both Western immunoblot and frozen tissue sections. So there's a close correlation between HER2 copy number and uh, expression of the gene. You'll also notice that those cases that are illustrated at the bottom for frozen section immunohistochemistry show a relatively uniform appearance of the level of staining throughout the tumor cell population that is here. And that was true throughout the entire collection of breast cancers uh, that were analyzed in frozen tissue sections. So there's a, a high correlation. You'll notice that for HER2 amplification, the HER2 gene copy number was compared with another gene on the same chromosome, when that ratio by southern blotting was greater than two, it was called amplified. You'll also note that in those cases that were not HER2 amplified, there was nevertheless expression of the gene, of the product of the gene. There were 10% of the cases that did not fall neatly into one of these categories of either amplified overexpression or low expression without amplification. And those 10% of cases are shown on the left-hand side of the slide. 
And they initially did not, we did not appreciate that they had HER2 amplification by southern blotting. They were subsequently reanalyzed separately uh, using fluorescence in situ hybridization. And these cases showed uh, HER2 gene amplification, as you can see in the lower right-hand corner, by fish in the tumor cell nuclei with multiple red signals corresponding to the HER2 gene amplification in this particular specimen that had previously not shown amplification by southern blotting. The overexpression is illustrated by strong membrane staining in these tumor cells. These cases were largely uh, stromal-rich breast cancers are breast cancers with a lot of inflammatory infiltrate so that the dilutional artifact of the normal DNA simply diluted out the tumor DNA. And using this type of an approach with southern blotting, we did not appreciate that the gene was actually amplified. And this leads to the conclusion that the HER2 the HER gene, when it's amplified, leads to overexpression at the messenger RNA level and overexpression at the protein level. And in the absence of gene amplification, we do not find increased levels of either messenger RNA or protein uh, in the vast majority of cases. Another issue that came up in this study, which is illustrated now, these are, were all frozen tissue samples that were analyzed, but we were also able to obtain paraffin-embedded blocks from the surgical pathology cases. And when these cases were compared head-to-head -head and unblinded, it was found that among cases that were appreciated to have HER2 expression on the membranes, some of those cases failed to demonstrate immunohistochemical staining for the product in the paraffin-embedded tissue samples. So that one can keep in mind that although this may work very well when we're analyzing frozen tissue samples, the challenge of formalin fixation, paraffin embedding, and then subsequent antigen retrieval does lead to some distortion in the uh, ability to analyze this particular product of the gene. One of the advantages of having uh, such a cohort of cases that have been molecularly characterized previously is that one can return to these cases as, that have been analyzed as frozen tissue samples and reanalyze them in a blinded fashion using the paraffin-embedded multi-tumor tissue blocks that were created from these. And when that was done, we had the results that are shown here. This shows the results across the top of a single breast cancer that was analyzed with six different assays, two fish assays, and four immunohistochemical assays. The case was known to be amplified and overexpressed. The two fish assays, one with a red fluorophore for HER2, the other assay with a green fluorophore for HER2, uh, demonstrates amplification and positive membrane staining was appreciated in this case. In contrast, a second case in the multi-tumor block that was also known to have amplification with overexpression was positive by both fish assays for gene amplification, but only demonstrated membrane staining in one of the four immunohistochemical assays. So in this microcosm, it illustrates what is demonstrated above. When we unblinded the samples, the concordance with known molecular HER2 status from the frozen samples demonstrated a high rate of uh, accuracy, sensitivity plus specificity, leads to an accuracy, led to an accuracy of over 95% for the fish assay in these samples, but only approximately a 90% for the immunohistochemical assays from two FDA-approved 
uh, immunohistochemical assays. And the difference between approximately 90% and over 95 was statistically significant, and we favored fish as the more accurate assay method since that date. And I will return to that uh, subsequently. So I should also mention that I have been a member of the ASCO-CAP Guidelines Committee for Breast Cancer since 2006. In 2007, the first guidelines came out uh, recommending that either immunohistochemistry or fish could be used. One of the, indicate, one of the suggestions or one of the, the guidelines was that before a laborat- clinical laboratory could be using immunohistochemistry, uh, as the primary screening modality for HER2 status that the laboratory should demonstrate with a direct head-to-head comparison that immunohistochemistry had a correlation in the 0, 1+, plus, and 3-plus category of 95% with HER2 gene amplification determined by FISH. And so I've listed the uh, studies that were published in the literature between after the guidelines from 2007 up to the iteration of the next guidelines in 2013-2014, and I've and across the top are the immunohistochemical staining categories: zero, one plus, two plus, or three plus, and I show the amplification rate in each one of those subcategories for studies that had at least 100 cases published in that time interval. And you'll notice in an ideal world or in the desirable world, as was recommended, a 95% concordance would lead to 95% or more of these cases that are three plus having gene amplification. I've boxed those that did not achieve that level of concordance for IHC three plus. On the other hand, the guidelines suggest that zero and one plus immunohistochemical staining can be considered to be negative. So here we should have an amplification rate of 5% or less. Boxed, you'll notice, are those uh, studies that had an amplification rate of greater than 5%. So in fact, relatively few of these studies actually achieved that concurrent level of concordance between what's called HER2 positive and HER2 negative. The guidelines at the time and currently suggests that only IHC2 plus needs to be refracted to fish for further adjudication. So does this matter? Does it matter to the patients? Does it matter to the oncologists if we use immunohistochemistry? Uh, This 95% concordance was eliminated in 2014 and the, the guidelines simply suggested that the clinical laboratories should determine within their lab what was going to be the appropriate level of agreement in order to use their immunohistochemical assay as the primary assay method. So this shows the outcome of a particular study uh, from a collaborator that's in Bavaria, Germany, that used this approach uh, of screening with immunohistochemistry initially, and then those patients that had IHC zero or one plus were considered to be HER2 negative and did not receive trastuzumab therapy as part of their treatment. And and then retrospectively, after several years of follow-up, the group suggested, well, maybe we should look back at these and see which cases were amplified and which ones were not. And we were invited in a retrospective fashion to reanalyze these by fish. And we found that 8% of the cases that had been characterized as zero and one plus by IHC, nevertheless had gene amplification 
in the primary breast cancer. And the distant disease-free survival of those 8% of patients in this cohort was statistically significantly worse than those patients who were IHC negative and also not amplified by fish. How about the other end of the spectrum? Does it matter if the uh, HER2 is considered to be positive by immunohistochemistry, but not by fish? So this shows summarized data from Dennis Slayman's initial seminal publication in the New England Journal of Medicine, where trastuzumab was approved initially by the FDA for patients who had metastatic breast cancer. All patients' cancers were screened by immunohistochemistry and needed to be positive, either 2 plus or 3 plus, to get into a trial of either chemotherapy alone or chemotherapy plus trastuzumab or Herceptin. And this shows the, the probability of overall survival in the cohort that were studied at the time. The p-value was just under 0.05 and achieved statistical significance for overall survival. On the other hand, when these cases were retrospectively evaluated by FISH, those patients that were, did not have gene amplification by FISH are plotted here in terms of their overall survival. There was no apparent benefit from receiving trastuzumab among, for these patients. So with IHC positive, not amplified breast cancer, no obvious benefit. In the lower left are those cases that were positive by IHC and also amplified by fish. And you can appreciate there's a wider separation in these outcome curves, which superimposed on the above plot shows a slightly greater separation in the analysis. And when we look at those that were HER2 amplified by fish, the p-value is more highly statistically significant, and the median survival shows a greater separation. So there, these are not just theoretical questions. These are practical issues related to testing that are worthwhile considering. Nevertheless, the current guidelines in 2018 still suggest that immunohistochemistry is an appropriate frontline assay to be used, and I have summarized uh, the publication uh, figure that illustrates this. So IHC 3 plus is considered to be positive, 1 plus and 0 is considered to be negative, and those cases that are IHC 2 plus or equivocal are uh, suggested to be reflexed for further analysis by, by fluorescence in situ hybridization. The level of staining that is used is shown here, negative where it's undetectable, IHC 1 plus, 2 plus, and 3 plus are illustrated as you see in front of you. So throughout the 1990s, we had an interest in fluorescence in situ hybridization as, a, as an alternative approach to characterizing the HER2 status. Uh, in, Farmalin-fixed paraffin-embedded tissue sections that involved uh, labeling a HER2 sequence with a red fluorophore, chromosome 17 centromere with a green fluorophore to provide an internal control. And as approved by the FDA, initially those cases that had an average HER2 copy number uh, ratio compared to chromosome 17 centromere that was great, when the ratio was greater than or equal to two, they were to be considered HER2 amplified, less than two, not amplified, as you see illustrated uh, in this particular slide. The current approach is more complicated, as I think many of you are aware. The, uh, initially in 2014, the guidelines published a recommendation that breast cancer should be separated 
considering both the overall HER2 ratio of HER2 compared to chromosome 17 centromere, determining whether it was greater than or less than 2, but also to use the average HER2 copy numbers as a further separation uh, in, the, in the groupings. Group 1 were those that were both had a ratio greater than 2 and an average HER2 copy number greater than 4 and were considered uh, in situ hybridization positive. At the other end of the spectrum are those that had a ratio less than 2 and an average HER2 copy number less than 4, and these are considered to be ish negative. Groups 2, 3, and 4 are less frequent, as I will show you on the next slide, uh, and they have in group 2 a ratio greater than 2, but an average HER2 copy number of less than 4. Group 3, and a ratio less than 2, HER2 signals on average greater than 6, greater than or equal to 6. Group 4, it was previously considered indeterminate, uh, and it, these cases have an average HER2 copy number between 4 and 6, with a ratio less than 2. And the additional workup that's recommended in each one of these categories includes a repeat of immunohistochemistry conducted in the laboratory that's doing the FISH assay, ideally. At the time when this was initially published as a recommendation in 2014 and 2013, there was no data available on this because it hadn't been used in the literature previously. And so we decided to uh, publish the data that we had that uh, provided some perspective on this. And so at the bottom in small print, you can see, I apologize for the small, it says the consultation study looked at the number of cases that we had. This was seven, a total of 7,500 plus cases in our consultation practice or referral practice compared to the Cancer International Research Group clinical trials that we had screened. And you'll notice that these groups, group two, three, and four, represent respectively less than 1%, less than 1%, and less than 5% of all breast cancers that were either overall in our consultation practice or had been sent to us for screening for entry to clinical trials. So these groups are relatively infrequent, and 90 to 95% of breast cancers will wind up being in groups 1 or group 5, relatively straightforward by fluorescence in situ hybridization. So the, the similar algorithm exists for analyzing cancers from the upper GI tract, as is recommended by a separate panel which I, of which I am not a member. And similarly, it's IHC3 plus positive, recommends further uh, recommends no uh, further testing is required. So IHC3 plus is considered positive for HER2. Zero and one plus is considered negative. Two plus is equivocal. The, ca the categories for surgical specimens and biopsy specimens are evaluated in a slightly different fashion. This is the illustration from the publication itself indicating zero, one plus, two plus, and three plus immunohistochemical staining. One of the emphases of these guidelines for immunohistochemistry is that breast cancer does not have luminal immunohistochemical staining, whereas gastric does. So in order to illustrate this lack of luminal staining, I've used a breast cancer from our laboratory that was highly amplified uh, for HER2, as you can see on the right. And you'll notice strong membrane staining, 
with an absence of luminal staining, which is consistently what we see whenever one searches for these lumina. However, in the HER2 amplified spectrum for breast cancer, these are usually moderately or poorly differentiated breast cancers that have relatively infrequent lumina, whereas in gastric cancer, they tend to be well differentiated or moderately differentiated adenocarcinomas that uh, will provide more frequent lumina for evaluation. So what I'm telling you here is that this is the same gene with the same alteration, the same protein product in the same distribution cellularly. The lumina are not stained in either breast cancer or in gastric cancer or in any other adenocarcinoma we've examined in the, in the human body. This is the illustration of HER2 by Fish for gene amplification from the publication of the guidelines panel in 2016. Left two examples not amplified on the right is a case that is amplified. The average HER2 copy number here is five without a grouping of the signals, which would be concerning in our laboratory. This is, these are examples of cases for upper GI cancers that do not have gene amplification, as you see here, but for average HER2 copy number and the final ratio, a similar ratio of 3, 10. And you'll notice that these HER2 signals are not only average, uh, have an increased average, but they're also grouped together, as we see below, both when the ratio is around 3 and when it's over 10 for a perspective. And then I'm going to say very briefly about HER2 low. So previously, HER2 has been divided into positive and negative, And now with the upcoming uh, paradigm for some of these cancers, we have another category called HER2 low as opposed to HER2 negative. And some of these issues are going to be difficult to sort out in our opinion because normal tissues, for example, have HER2 expression in the membrane. These are normal breast uh, terminal duct lobular unit in frozen tissue. It's also expressed throughout normal epithelia of the body. So what we're really looking for for the therapeutic advantage is a differential between low expression of normal epithelia and low expression of breast cancers that do not have HER2 amplification. And I suspect that this is going to be a bit of a challenge to sort out with new assay methods potentially being required in order to de determine which patients are most appropriate for this kind of therapy. As many of you will recall for the B47 trial, where this group was previously analyzed of HER2, comparing trastuzumab with chemotherapy to chemotherapy alone, there was virtually no separation in the outcome curves for either disease-free survival or overall survival. And I'm going to stop at that point and simply summarize what we use as guidelines in our laboratory, uh, as I, I pointed out, that immunohistochemistry and fish are highly correlated, especially in frozen section. Because of the previous advantage of fish, we routinely use both in our laboratory, both immunohistochemistry and fish on all cases. If you're in a position where you have to choose only one assay, I recommend fish alone. The guidelines will lead to a 95 percent, 90 to 95% uh, lack of change. They'll all either be amplified or not amplified. The groups two through four are relatively infrequent. HER2 genomic heterogeneity is relatively infrequent in our lab, both for breast and gastric cancer. 
and I thank you for your attention. Okay, with that, we'll move to the last part of, of today, which is now focusing on lung cancer. And I think from what we have seen, it's clear that there are tumor-specific differences. Now we'll see how they can impact the way we test um, specimens. Um, and HER2 in lung cancer has been very different from what we have seen in breast and, and gastric cancer. Um, and as you can see here, there is expression, but the frequency of overexpression detected by mostly by protein assays is relatively low with 15 to 30% um, relative to other HER2, uh, HER family members. Uh, and then the amplification and mutation, so essentially structural genomic alterations are relatively low. So they range from one to nearly 5%. Um, but anyway, it's been shown to be relevant, uh, mostly because of the signaling and the protomorigenic effect. Um, as we discussed, there are a number of um, options now to target those HER2-expressing tumors that have been tested in lung cancer. Um, and one of the interesting things is that mostly because lung cancer requires other oncogenic driver mutations to be tested to initiate treatments such as EGFR, KRAS, ALK and ROS1 at the least, you know, now we have actually a larger list. In lung cancer, we generally don't use immunohistochemistry or fluorescence in situ hybridization. We generally do next generation sequencing to be able to um, obtain information about major oncogenic drivers, uh, and then that can also drive the decision to use immunotherapy. So as opposed to um, um, other tumors in lung cancer, generally we look at alterations and HER2 uh, can be amplified or mutated in a fraction, which I will show you it can be very relevant for this new ADCs. I have also mentioned that um, circulating tumor DNA is increasingly being used. Uh, and it has the capacity to actually detect um, HER2 mutations in a fraction of patients. Um, it has a high um, rate of false negative, so you should be careful and not completely trust the ctDNA, but it's a good option to actually monitor patients. We just look at the data from the Destiny lung trial using uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan, but I want to focus on something that is very interesting and challenges the mechanism of action of these therapies, which is that in lung cancer, you can see this beautiful waterfall plot with many, many patients having deep responses, but you can see that there is essentially no relationship with the level of HER2 expression at the protein level or HER2 amplification. Actually, if you see the deepest response occur in a patient with zero IHC HER2. So now we're telling you that HER2 low and HER2 negative patients can benefit. And now we're telling you that in lung cancer, there is actually no relationship between protein levels, amplification, and response to treatment. So what's going on? How can we interpret this? And I think there are a number of open questions that will need to be addressed in the future. But what is also interesting is that in the case of lung cancer, the cases that had activity were actually the ones harboring mutations. And you can see here, or maybe not see, uh, that the majority of patients here had exon 20 insertions, which are the most common form of uh, HER2 mutations in lung cancer, and then some mutations in exon 8. Um, so essentially, we're, it's completely different than in breast and in gastric. Here, the amount of protein by IHC and the number of copies of the gene don't matter, and it's all about having um, activating mutations in HER2. So now when we look at the spectrum of mutations of HER2 in lung cancer, they generally occur in adenocarcinoma. It's very unusual to see HER2 mutations in squamous carcinomas or small cell carcinoma. And they're generally these in-frame mutations in exon 20, which as you can see account for the majority um, of the mutations. Here you can see this is fragment, this fragment, and this fragment. 
Um, what is interesting, though, is that there are other mutations in HER2 that are not in exon 20 or exon 8, which these ones that are exon 8. All of these ones are outside the tyrosine kinase domain, and they have not been tested. So at this point, um, we don't know um, if mutations beyond exon 8 and exon 20 in HER2 are actually um, sensitive to some of these treatments. Um, so there are a number of questions yet. Now we're going to move to HER3, uh, which we also saw uh, can be involved um, in, in responses to some of these um, ADCs. Um, and what I realized when we look at the literature is that we don't know a whole lot about HER3, um, principally because it's not frequently mutated or amplified, so it's actually harder to study with uh, sequencing. Uh, and there are only a few studies showing expression at the protein level, um, some of which report that in general HER3 is expressed in anywhere between 60 to 80% of primary non-small cell lung cancers. Um, as you can see, it is as expected, there is some membranous staining and also some cytoplasmic signal. Um, and you see a range of cases that have, in this case, um, a high signal in the carcinoma cells, intermediate and negative slash low. Um, these studies have also pointed that overexpression of HER3 um, is associated with um, lower survival and sort of high-grade malignancy, so it's expected to be a pro-tumorigenic factor. But what is also interesting is that HER3 upregulation at the transcript level or protein level has been consistently seen in patients with oncogenic driver mutations that become resistant to frontline treatment with tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And this was very clear in patients with EGFR activating mutations in exon 18 to 21 that were treated with uh, osimertinib and other third generation TKIs. So there was this idea that HER3 without having mutations, just upregulation could actually mediate resistance to um, tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Um, so this actually uh, prompted some of the studies to test um, targeting HER3 in this context. And this is a study we discussed recently about targeting a HER3 with a HER3 uh, deruxtecan conjugate. And for this study, patients were selected for having EGFR-resistant disease to tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So all the patients you're seeing now were already resistant when they enrolled. And, and immunohistochemistry was performed on baseline specimens in 43 out of the 57 patients enrolled. So the N is 43 is not a huge number. But it was interesting that they scored um, the e e HER3 levels at the membrane using H-score, which is essentially a combination of a number of positive cells and intensity with a maximum potential of 300. And as you can see here, there was a wide range of distributions of HER3 positivity scores with cases that were nearly zero and cases that had up to 280. Um, it was also interesting there was no relationship between the expression of HER3 and the time between the EGFR resistance and, and the initiation of HER3 uh, targeting treatment. But what was most interesting is that as seen for other um, uh, situations, there was no clear relationship between the level of HER3 expression in the tumors and the response to treatment. And you can see here that patients with um, complete and partial response and stable disease were actually all over the spectrum of HER3 levels. And actually patients that had very low or nearly negative HER3 still had a stable disease and one um, or close to uh, activity. So essentially, there is no obvious relationship between the amount of the protein detectable in baseline specimens and the response to treatment. There is no survival data yet, so this is going to be important to look at. Maybe the stratification happens at the survival level, uh, but so far we have no reason to believe that baseline HER3 expression will predict response to treatment. 
So now we're moving to um, the last of the uh, ADC targets that we have been discussing today, and this is TROP2. Um, as I mentioned, this protein is um, upregulated in many epithelial cells, including non-tumor cells in certain contexts, uh, particularly in the context of tissue repair, inflammation, and during embryogenesis. Um, what is interesting is that there are not many assays developed, and therefore there are no current scoring guidelines or anything close to that. Uh, but I was able to find this study. It was actually reported by Daishi Sankyu, who initially developed this, um, this uh, uh, the and conjugates. And they were able to develop this clone, and they scored them using a combination of positivity in cells and intensity. As you can see here, they called high TROP2 in cases that had um, low uh, or high intensity in more than 50% of cells, um, and then more than 10% with any membrane staining. So similar to original HER2 scoring. Um, and you can see here that it looks uh, generally membranous with some uh, perinuclear reinforcement. But what they did, they screened uh, retrospective cohorts of primary lung cancers, um, including adenocarcinoma, squamous cell carcinomas, and also high-grade neuroendocrine tumors, including small cell and large cell neuroendocrine carcinomas. And they were able to find uh, very high levels of expression in lung adeno, which uh, amounted to about 64% with a relatively large cohort, to squ in squamous was in the neighborhood of 75%, and it was much lower in high-grade neuroendocrine tumors with a positivity rate of 18%. But this, again, supports that the majority of uh, lung cancers um, actually um, express meaningful amounts of uh, TROP2 in their surface, and this is a, a good uh, uh, suggestion that, uh, or explanation for the activity um, that has been seen clinically. So now um, we're going to have a discussion about uh, critical topics that may be relevant in this context. And I would like to open um, the panel discussion with one question that has been resonating in my mind for quite a while since I've seen the data, which is how this new um, you know, treatment groups, including the HER2 low, may be able to impact the classification of cancers as we know. And I would like to focus on breast cancer. As you all know, we classify generally breast cancer into three major subsets. The HER2 positive, which are about 10, 15%, the hormone receptor positive, which are the vast majority, about 70% or so. And then we have the triple negative, which is about 10, 15%, which is the one defined by the absence of hormone receptors and the absence of HER2. Now, with this HER2 low, we may actually start uh, moving those classifications because the fraction of patients that are going to be considered to be HER2 positive is probably going to change, expand, and maybe even shrink or even eliminate the triple negative breast cancer group. Um, and this may actually also happen in other tumors. So my uh, question to the panel is, do you think there will be a shift um, in the classification of breast cancer as we know today? Um, and if that happens, do you think it's going to be um, relevant and hopefully better? Um, so I'd like to start uh, with uh, Dr. Press. Uh, well, I think that the classification of the biomarkers will be determined by the drugs. If the drugs work effectively, then we'll have to have biomarker predictive markers that are suitable for selecting patients. And so this is, uh, as I allude, tried to allude to in my talk, I think this is an area of, that we should watch very carefully. Uh, these new drugs, the antibody drug conjugates, are very promising. But there is also some risks that are involved for the patients and oncologists. So it's an area that may require some new assays. Dr. Tarantino, would like to get your opinion about this? 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree with Dr. Press. And I also think that the, the design of the trials is going to somehow um, move the classification of breast cancer. Because, for instance, the Destiny Breast 04 trial, which is the one that was recently announced to be positive for PFS and OS, showed somehow that TDXT improved these outcomes compared to chemotherapy in patients with an IHC score for her two of one plus or two plus with negative fish. But we have seen also this small trial called DAISY showing that TDXD can have an important activity, 30% objective response rate, also in patients with a score of zero. So potentially TDXD for some reason could be active in all the spectrum of HER2 expressions. We have to understand if the activity has got a different length, so a different PFS depending on the expression, but I really expect in the future that we might have these therapeutic options for most of the patients with breast cancer. And also because other trials, for instance, the Destiny Breast 06, are also expanding this treatment and enrolling patients with IHC zero with minimal expression over two. Because in the categories, in the classification over two that we currently have, IHC zero is not non -ex no expression over two, but it's no expression or less than 10% of the cells showing a low or two expression. So there is still some ultra low expression in the IHC zero category. And in the future, we're going to need to possibly make it more granular with other assays, with novel assays for her too. Thank you. Dr. Weinberg, do you think this could impact um, upper GI malignancies and maybe we'll have a subset of, um, you know, her two positive um, gastroesophageal tumors? So, so far, the indications are no. Um, it, it seems to be different. And I think that, um, you know, as, as we talked about her two gastric cancer and her two breast cancer, there are, there are some differences. And one of the big differences is you know, the activity of the drugs. So, so if we really feel like, you, you know, the drugs are the reason why um, they're going to change the biomarkers and gastric cancer and, and GI cancer so far, we haven't seen any evidence of efficacy, even hints of efficacy in the so-called HER2 low um, space, indicating that the bystander effect there is not quite as promising. I, I'll point out that I, I, I you know, be, it, it may be simply because of all the co-occurring alterations that are occurring in these cancer cells in, in gastric cancer that are, uh, you know, very complex um, molecularly. So if, if, the, if we're allowing the drugs to choose the biomarkers, so far we haven't had a, an indication that that's the case in GI tumors. Thank you very much. So I have a follow-up question that it's related to something I, I mentioned. Uh, we have a number of, of things here that don't seem too perfectly square. First, we have activity of these drugs in, in tumors that are negative for HER2. Second, we have um, activity in lung cancer regardless of the level of expression and associated with mutations. And third, the safety profile of this ADC seems to actually be closer to chemotherapy than to original targeted agents. So the question for the panel is, do you think we understand the mechanism of action and we should be, um, you know, uh, peacefully accepting that the mechanism of action is the one that it's being proposed? Um, what do you think uh, may be going on beyond the current proposed mechanisms? Um, maybe uh, Dr. Tarantino, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I, um, I think that sometimes these treatment ADCs are called targeted treatments, but I think the best way to call them is targeted chemotherapies because they, they are chemotherapy. They have chemotherapy-related side effects like GI toxicity, like myelosuppression. They do have this, but they also somehow interact in a complex way with tumors. So I think they can have several effects. And this is exactly what we are seeing, for instance, in breast cancer, because 
the activity that you see in HER2 positive breast cancer is really stunning. It's unprecedented compared to other compounds. The one we have seen with trastuzumab deruxacan. And this is likely to be related to the fact that it, it acts in several ways. The delivery of chemotherapy, the blockade of the HER2 pathway, uh, immune effects, several effects playing together. Whereas probably in the HER2 low disease, where you see some activity, but seriously not comparable with the HER2 positive disease, this probably means that here you do have the chemotherapy-related activity, but you might not have the blockade of the HER2 pathway because we have seen, as Dr. Press has presented, the B47 trial, that the only the, the simple blockade of the HER2 pathway with trastuzumab did not exert any benefit in HER2 low tumors. So we, we might need in the future to dissect the, the activity of uh, the different ways these ADCs uh, are active against tumors, and this might correlate with different activity in clinical practice. Thank you, Dr. Weinberg. What do you think about that? Do you have any additional thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I so payload matters, I think. And, you know, as, as you look at antibody drug conjugates, you look at, um, you know, the way technologies improve them. It's, it's, a, it's relatively new field in oncology drug development, but we've already seen, you know, improvements in both linker technology and payload technology. And so, you know, the older ADCs, which used to utilize a payload of MMAE, have fallen out of favor for a number of reasons. Number one, there's a lot of toxicity, particularly peripheral neuropathy, which limits dose escalation with a lot of these MMAE-based ADCs. Um, whereas opposed to certainly in the GI tumors, if we, if we look at the new wave of, uh, of ADCs, we, we like payloads that have the payload has a cytotoxin already known to have some efficacy in GI tumors, such as exotecan, as in this case, as in TDXD, and some other newer ones where the payload is a uh, topoisomerase uh, type of payload. So I, th I think the payload does matter, particularly in cancers where um, the expression of the target is lower, and we're counting on that, um, the, the payload to have a lot of, provide a lot of efficacy. Thank you. So now, um, as a pathologist, I, I really get scared when I look at this type of data. You know, we have been a long time to standardize HER2, and we're still struggling in many ways. Um, now we're seeing HER3, TROP2, and then a whole host of additional targets that potentially we're going to have to measure and quantify or semi-quantify in tissue. Um, so uh, in the data that I just shared, we see multiple different scoring systems for these targets. Some people use predefined thresholds, some people use age scores. Um, and that's a problem because age scores are continuous distribution. So how are we going to find cut points? I see a lot of uh, excitement, but also a lot of challenges. So Dr. Press, how do you think this is going to uh, be rolled out uh, based on your experience with HER2? And, and are you uh, optimistic about how this is going to work in the future? I'm optimistic that it will work and work effectively, but it may take some time to resolve. I think there's some cautionary notes here, whereas we say HER2 negative, what we really mean related to HER2 is low. Even the, the IHC zeros by immunohistochemistry and formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded tissues express HER2 at the protein level and at the messenger RNA level. And so uh, what we're really looking for is a way of quantitatively and accurately assessing different levels of HER2 low throughout the entire spectrum of breast cancer and then possibly considering complications in the patients, we may need to be able to differentiate that in the can that low level in the cancers from the low level that is expressed in normal epithelial cells. 
and no one has tried to focus on that as an issue. Whether we need to or not remains to be seen. It'll be driven by the drugs and the clinical trials and the findings in those, I think. Thank you. So now um, I would like to move to another topic and the last topic of this discussion, which is um, in a world you know, uh, dominated by next generation sequencing, um, is there still room to do sequential testing using fish assays and sort of a spatially resolved um, context? Um, and this is also critical because uh, circulating tumor DNA is out there. It's actually recommended by NCCN guidelines in certain settings, not as a primary diagnostic, but certainly uh, it's being heavily used. Um, so uh, the question for the panel is, what do you think um, and what are your current thoughts about starting off with next generation sequencing to identify her two mutations, amplification, or, or maybe some problems with the other targets and how complementary that could be with a sequential approach using tissue um, in a setting going forward. Um, so I'd like to start with Dr. Weinberg. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, so, so I think, um, you know, as of now, um, you know, there's a few cancers that we obviously routinely get next generation sequencing for like non-small cell lung cancer, because you have a lot of mutations there. You don't necessarily have um, the, the mutations or the dominant uh, molecular alteration that is a driving mutation, driving mutations that lead them to specific therapies. But, um, you know, we can see even if you look at the immunotherapy experience the last few years, we're not moving away from immunostochemistry so fast. We're not re relying exclusively on NGS to make determinations. I think so long as the FDA has companion diagnostics associated with drug development, we are actually going to be dependent and, and still use um, a lot of these companion diagnostics on immunistic chemical level as opposed to next generation sequencing. We, we haven't seen that many drugs um, outside of perhaps the non-small cell lung cancer experience find their way to an FDA approval um, based on an NGS companion diagnostic. It's still been primarily protein-based. I think, uh, you know, the corollary or question, which is starting to move in that, in, in that regard, is do we see a future in which the FDA will allow for um, additional companion diagnostics, such as circulating tumor DNA and things like that, to, to accompany um, its drug development? And there are suggestions that in orphan diseases and in rare cases, that is moving in that direction. But it's, I, I think we're, we're still in that process. Thank you. Dr. Tarantino, do you have any thoughts about that? <clears throat> yeah, I agree that absolutely this um, disease-related um, issue, disease-related thing. So for some diseases where we have a lot of tar potential targetable alterations, it's much more compelling to perform upfront NGS, whereas in other um, in other diseases like breast cancer, it might be less appealing, although now there are several also uh, tumor agnostic alterations which are emerging. And for instance, we have NTRAC, which is very rare, but we do, we do have very potent TKIs against NTRAC. And then we have MSI tumors, which show an instability of microsatellite. Uh, they have an, an exclusively sensitivity to immunotherapy. And we have seen also an approval for, of, of Pemrisva for TMB high tumors. So tumors that have a high tumor mutational burden, more than 10 mutation per megabase, they tend to respond to immunotherapy. So to find these alterations, it's, it's, more, it's compelling to perform wider uh, profiling. And there are some, uh, let's say, classifications that are helping to understand when it, it, it's worth it to, um, to perform these assays and also to, to give a drug match to a particular alteration. For instance, the ESMO uh, has created the ESCAT 
classification, which helps to find the tier of the alteration and to identify really those that are clinically relevant to those that are less clinically relevant. And this is very important to rank in a clinical way the alterations that you might find. Great. I just wanted to comment on that, that um, in general, you know, the ctDNA analysis, uh, it's not able to detect levels of protein by any mean or expression in the tumor. So I think there's certainly complementarity, but there may be disease-specific context to prioritize this. So I really uh, would like to thank the uh, speakers and the discussion panel, um, and I would like to thank everyone for joining so early in the day. And with this, we close the session. Thank you very much. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash EZK860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated and Seagen Incorporated.